When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I'm utterly thrilled today. I'm really looking forward to this because I have with me Rafinda Ratti, who is a former journalist for the Times of India, writing on human rights and conflict resolution. Uh, he, he did all of his uni stuff in Delhi at St. Stephen's College, but then he's come over here and done an MA in politics as well and he's just released his first book which looks at the role of Indian soldiers fighting for the British this is fascinating welcome Ravindra thank you thank you Alex thank you very much and congratulations on the book as well thank you thank you so the book you describe it as an alternative history of decolonization what do you mean by that uh, thank you, Alex. So what I mean by that is that uh, decolonization, um, uh, if we if we um, bring it down to its bare essence, is is a strategic phenomena, um, both decolonization and its reversal. It is about um, a group of um, uh, predominantly men um, uh, taking control of another political territory and, uh, and and the inhabitants thereof. And it happens by force. Uh, nobody willingly becomes a colony or a slave. And then the decolonization, by consequence, also happens by force. Um, in India's case, it's very uh, it's it's very interesting because uh, almost 80% of the soldiers who actually held India for the East India Company and subsequently after the 1857 um, uh, uprising, um, uh, at least uh, 60 to 70% of those soldiers were Indian. Um, uh, and... and um, uh, to look at why India got colonized and why eventually it got decolonized, you look at the you need to look at that uh, that armed force um, and um, uh, it, the, the reasons for decolonization, particularly in relation to India, are ambiguous um, uh, to 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 to, to uh, in in most uh, popular narratives. Um, suddenly, after the Second World War in 1947, uh, Britain decides to uh, um, leave India, uh, grant its independence. Um, but the appetite for empire at that time had not waned. 
in fact, um, uh, Britain fought a war in uh, in uh, in East Africa in Kenya. Um, uh, there were thousands who were killed. Um, the Britain also fought a war in Malaysia throughout fifties, um, and the appetite to keep an empire was very strong. Uh, and forget about 1947. Even in 2014, there was a Yugo poll, and one third of the pollsters said that they would like to have an empire. So something very peculiar happened in 1947 uh, when not only um, the independence was granted to India, but in fact it was advanced by almost an year uh, by Lord M Mountbatten, who was the Viceroy of India. Um, and uh, when I looked into um, the, the the background and the facts of the case. It appears to me that um, during the year 1946, um, the key instrument through which uh, uh, Raj uh, controlled India, which was the Indian Army, um, somehow um, uh, the British Raj and its officials could not rely upon that army anymore. And therefore, for their own safety and for an um, orderly withdrawal from India, they not only granted independence, but advanced it uh, in a sudden rush out of subcontinent. Uh, this is going to be so good. You've mentioned them already. Uh, you, your book focuses on the biggest scumbags of the lot, really, doesn't it? The East India Company. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, just explain to them what that was. Yes, uh, thank you, Alex. So East India Company was a trading company which was founded uh, in 1600. Um, uh, it received its charter from the reigning sovereign. And its initial purpose was to trade uh, with East Indies, which was basically um, the area beyond uh, Indian Ocean, including what is today Indonesia, Southeast Asia and India. And it used to trade in spices, uh, um, silk um, and other commodities, which were uh, very much in demand in Europe and in England in particular at that time, and uh, used to pay for that um, in, in silver or gold bullions. And, and, and there was huge hue and cry as to how the wealth of, of, uh, of England and Europe was being drained um, through these uh, these purchases. Um, eventually, the East India Company um, uh, managed to uh, find its foot in India itself in, in its trading activities. But for 150 years, it was a, a business uh, entity, a trading entity which carried out its, uh, its, um, its trade more or less in peace. Uh, it also had a charter to hire soldiers and to uh, create fortifications for its own defense, which it had a very small one. But suddenly in the middle of 18th century, because of the civil war and the turmoil in India, it became one of the leading political uh, and, uh, and military powers in India. Uh, so that's basically the background of East India Company. It lasted till 1857 um, when there was a mutiny. Um, you know, in Britain, they call it mutiny. In India, we call it a uh, uh, struggle for independence. And thereafter, the East India Company was wrapped up and, uh, and the rule of India passed to the crown. I think you've already mentioned, haven't you, the staggering proportion of soldiers serving the East India Company um, who were Indian and not British. Uh, so what drives people to want to serve this foreign power? Is it economic? I mean, the, the company is a, a power in its own right. It gets completely out of control, doesn't it, in terms of that? So they're subjugating their country. So what makes an Indian man want to go and serve this, this fighting force? Thank you. So the answer is actually quite complex, and <laughs> there are at least two chapters in the book devoted to it. Yeah. Um, so India had a very ancient um, uh, martial culture, a, um, uh, and uh, soldiery as a profession um, was very well regarded and uh, very well sought after. 
not everybody had not everybody was allowed to um, train in in uh, in the art of war and hold weapons a limited portion of society was and therefore the prestige that came with it and the duty to act um, in in consonance with the demands and the and the ethics of holding arm um, was 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 crucial to the to the soldiers of india um in mid 18th century actually from the beginning of the 18th century india essentially entered a civil war where the last last powerful mughal emperor there were other mughal emperors who were less powerful and less known um basically incited a civil war on the religious lines by his efforts to want to convert many of the indians to uh, to islam and there was a reaction to that and that essentially led to the whole empire being destabilized um which also meant that there were a number of um, uh, so called free lances and swords a large number of soldiers which would become unemployed after one of their uh, lords and masters um were uh, were decimated or destroyed um and um at the same time um the east india company was uh, was acting to defense its uh, territory to, not so much territory its fortifications um and um basically if you if you bring it down to the bare essentials uh, they were uh, regular in their payment and um whereas the indian princes at that time uh, mostly would keep their soldiers in arrears use this as a as as an instrument sometimes to make sure that they don't defect um uh, and and also you, uh, the east india company had uh, had a unique benefit which is called which we today know as pension uh, which was uh, sort of unknown at that time to the uh, to the soldiers of the indian princes so these two or three uh, elements distinguished Uh, the east india company service for the soldiers so initially east india company became a preferred employer for the best military talent in india and eventually it became the sole and exclusive employer of military talent in india and demilitarized um, the rest of the unemployed soldiers and that's how it became um, uh, that that's how the indian uh, soldiers came to work with um, east india company there's also a very deep cultural uh, and and um, an ethical link of a soldier to his master uh much like the samurai culture in japan where if you take and pay which is basically uh, you know called salt um from from your master uh, there was a time when pay used to be um awarded uh, in in by uh, in the form of salt because salt was a very precious commodity and this comes from there that if you take and your employer salt you are due to serve him loyally with his life with your life and your best of abilities and that was a sacred duty for most of the soldiers and they stuck to it Uh, in india the national distinctions as they exist in europe today and in the world today and as they existed in mid 18th century were not so distinguished um most of the soldiers worked for a particular employer and as long as the employer kept faith paid them regularly did not interfere in their religious beliefs they thought that that employer was as good as any other so that was the reason basically how indian uh, soldiers came to be employed by east india company it's absolutely fascinating that it's just such a cultural difference i think and um, there's been a lot of work lately on martial race theory hasn't there which is about how europeans sort of pin certain soldierly attributes on people based on the region they come from uh, so apparently highlanders uh, scottish highlanders are meant to be particularly fierce warriors and they they sort of apply this to the same from uh, mountainous areas of india don't they i think my family are pathan i think and they're supposed to be like awesome warriors uh, but what do indians think of the europeans though i mean how do they view these people commanding them how do they view their bosses 
So uh, the, the relationship between the soldiers and their English officers uh, goes through three different phases. Uh, in the sort of initial 1740s, um, till about 1740s, uh, there were only a few hundred, um, not even soldiers, peons uh, employed by the East India Company for defense of the three fortifications in Calcutta, uh, Madras, and, uh, and Bombay, which is today known as Mumbai. Um, but in 1740s, because of the conflict um, uh, around the Austrian succession spilling over into India and the conflict against uh, French trading company in India, the Brit East India Company started hiring uh, soldiers. In the initial 20 to 30 years, that relationship was a, uh, of camaraderie, that relationship was of um, uh, trust, that relationship meant that a number of Indian uh, officers actually went on to command very significant expeditions. And there's one particular soldier called Yusuf Khan, whom uh, Robert Omi, the historian of uh, 18th century East India Company Army, um, uh, terms in the same league as Robert Clive and, uh, and, and Major Lawrence, uh, in terms of how important he was in founding the East India Company's empire in India. There were a number of soldiers like these um, who fought in East India Company armies very closely, almost, um, uh, 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 you know, they, they were considered equal partners in, in, in that venture. Once the East India Company became more secure in its, uh, in its power, particularly in Bengal and Madras, um, generally in the late 18th and early 19th century, British attitudes changed uh, towards Indians and India. And that also started to inform their attitude towards the soldiers. So the officers were, uh, Indian officers were basically reduced in terms of responsibility. They did not hold real command after 18, uh, 1780s and 90s. And that started a little bit, um, that upset the relationship between them. Um, so from Beginning of 1806, there were a number of mutinies. The Vellore in first, the Vellore in, in South India was the first one. Uh, thereafter, the mutiny um, related to uh, the, the Burma expedition, where some soldiers refused to go by the sea in 1824. Um, uh, thereafter, the mutiny in Sindh, uh, when after the disaster in Afghanistan, some regiments um, refused uh, to, to serve in Sindh without allowances. Um, and uh, in 1852, again in, in South India, and finally in 1857. So that was a very turbulent period um, uh, of, of relationship. And after 1857, I think after the, uh, the, the, the after East India Company won um, that conflict with the help of uh, Sikhs uh, from North India and, and other soldiers from Northwest India, then it became a more, um, how should I say, a more settled relationship. But I would, uh, but inspired by the personal relationship between the officers and the soldiers, mm. um, uh, and and uh, the, the, there seemed to be really um, very deep emotional connection between um, many of these officers and the soldiers at individual level for for each of these battalions. Uh, but they remained like uh, oil and water. Um, they were together. They worked together, and they were inspired by the conduct of their their officers. Uh, very clearly, especially during the World Wars, First World War in particular, and 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 the, they responded to that. They did their job. Um, so it's it, it's a complex history. Uh, there was respect for for what their officers were doing, um, uh, uh, but uh, there were also, um, especially after the during the Second World War, when a number of Indians were commissioned into command roles as the properly commissioned officers. That relationship, that dynamics shifted um, uh, totally. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. 
Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. This is right. Okay, we need to unpack this, don't we? So let's start. I, I just you've, you've flown through quite a lot of history there. So let's go back and talk about a few uh, key points. So we've been talking about the sheer amount of power that the East India Company ended up wielding over India before 1857. Um, we'll get to 1857 in a minute. But how do, how do they become so powerful? Yeah. So. Um... They become powerful um, uh, essentially by being able to mobilize this wonderful uh, army. Um, and the wonderful army they managed to mobilize uh, because uh, there was a culture of, uh, of soldiery, uh, a profession of soldiers, where soldiers had the discretion to be employed by a master that they thought was worthy of their, uh, of, of their skills and of their profession. Um, and the distinction between what is you know, strictly national and, and non-national was was uh, was not as pervasive in India at the time. Um, you know, India, as you know, um, uh, has been a, a very ancient society uh, with open borders, and and a number of um, uh, foreigners who came to India invaded India. Most of them stayed back, um, uh, and, and 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 there was a very. Uh, it was ethnically, religiously, racially one of the most diverse societies in the world as it is even today. So in that cultural context, um, uh, the soldiers uh, were, were, uh, did not make a distinction between a trading company from Europe employing them versus an Indian prince employing them. And obviously the trading company and the, uh, the, the uh, officers of the trading company, um, they acted um, uh, professionally and they kept trust as far as the payment for the soldiers were concerned. And in fact, there was a directive passed pretty early in 1750s uh, by the Madras Council saying, that no matter what happens, a soldier's pay is the first expense that the company has to distribute. You might have to borrow, steal, plunder, whatever the, uh, the, the resort you have to take, but we have to pay our soldiers in time. Uh, they did not pay more. It was not extravagant payment, but they just paid regularly. And that is what that steady um, uh, reliance on your employer is, is essentially um, created this loyalty between the soldiers and the East India Company. And obviously, they were helped in this process by uh, by, by the divisions within India. Uh, the Mughal Empire was uh, totally in shambles. It was a sorry skeleton of its former self. Uh, the Marathas in south, the Jats in north, and Sikh in northwest, they had dismembered the empire. They had created their own uh, kingdoms in, in those areas. The two remaining uh, uh, governors of the Mughal Empire, the Nizam in south, um, uh, Ali Wardi Khan in Bengal, um, were constantly harassed by the Marathas and uh, they, they basically wanted a security net so that they could survive. Otherwise, the Marathas would have run over them. And after the initial conflict with the East India Company, they thought that it's better to align with the East India Company for their own safety. Um, and and uh, thereby, they, uh, they not only accepted an alliance, they provided regular revenue to fund an army which is commanded and controlled by the East India Company, but paid for by these states as a subsidiary alliance, as almost a defensive payment. Um, and that system just continued to grow. And India obviously was a very rich economy at that time. 
um, with immense resources. It still was about 20, 20, 25% of the world economy. And once you have that wealth, you can create and sustain a global army. So that's what the East India Company did. It started small. It was at the right place at the right time. The soldiers had the right material. The officers responded well. And once they, the more territory they acquired, the more resources they had to uh, better uh, equip, train, and manage this army. Uh, and it kind of became a, a virtuous cycle. And that's how by 1857, they had this magnificent army in, in Asia, which although based in India, was utilized almost across the world, except probably for Americas. Okay. And then along comes a massive stink, which begins, I believe, with the fat used to grease the rifles. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Correct, correct. Um, but actually, the, a number of uh, incidents were, uh, were uh, hinting that the relationship between the East India Company and its soldiers is not going well. Um, and uh, as I said, as soon as the East India Company felt more confident in its rule, which it did after 1805, after the Second Anglo-Maratha War, when Sindhya um, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Raja of Berar, they were defeated um, by, um, uh, by, by Wellington's armies. Um, uh, the first, one of the first directives to change the appearance of Indian soldiers was issued by the Madras Council. And what it said is that basically you need to trim your mustache and your beard and start wearing the English hat, um, the, the, the hat which had uh, leather in it. And that obviously, uh, to, you know, uh, arose suspicion in the soldiers thinking that, okay, they're not respecting the religious scruples, both of Hindus and Muslims. And there was a big mutiny in the Valor Fort, which eventually was carved because the soldiers did not have a big design. They just wanted to um, register their protest. But after that, that directive was withdrawn. And the Madras governor at that time, uh, Benting, uh, actually had to be uh, withdrawn. Uh, uh, so, so he lost his job and so did the uh, um, commander-in-chief in Madras. Um, so starting from 1806, um, then there was obviously uh, uh, a conflict in 1855 in, uh, in South India, uh, 
in, in a cantonment related to Muharram procession, which is a Muslim religious festival where one of where, where the head of the where the commander of the of the garrison was assaulted. Uh, and and uh, uh, and again, the governor general had to issue a proclamation that never again we are going to interfere in the religious religious activities of our soldiers. Um, however, in the first quarter of this nineteenth uh, century, uh, eighteen twenty five and and thereafter, because of the confidence in in the Victorian era, era a number of the English, uh, the British officers, both military and civil, um, uh, were uh, were strong believers in their faith. Uh, and there was a movement to uh, proselytize India, um, uh, and and to they, they considered it their duty to basically uh, spread that message, and that uh, the civilian population was the first to see it and experience it. But soldiers also lived in close proximity with their officers, and although they did not feel it and see it initially directly, they could see what was going around them. And as a consequence of what was happening generally in India. And because of the arrogance of the officers, that combined with the fact that these cartridges, which were suspected to have pig and cow fat in them, were being distributed widely, um, incited this mutiny, which started in uh, early 1857 and took almost 18 months to, to control, led to hundreds of thousands, if not millions, dead, um, and uh, uh, you know, obviously impacted on the, uh, on the relationship between um, East India Company and, and, and its soldiers. It did. Uh, and, and when something that big happens and that bloody happens, there has to be drastic action. Um, and the British government basically come in and sideswipe the East India Company out of the picture and take over, don't they? Um, and then surprisingly, considering all that's passed, it does stabilise, doesn't it? So um, uh, East India Company was... Uh... Actually, from the late 18th century, after the Bengal famine in the 1770s and 80s, uh, during Warren Hastings' time, um, uh, uh, when they messed up the economy totally, continued to extort more tax, uh, but did not provide for the benefit of, of, of those who suffered from hunger and poverty, which Indian pr princes usually did by commuting the revenue demand during, during particularly uh, bad years of harvest. Um, there was a parliamentary uh, oversight and and although the company still was a different entity, but it had control from the government uh, uh, in in terms of the India board. However, throughout the as you rightly uh, said, throughout uh, the first half of the 19th century, uh, East India Company was the legal uh, de jure um, ruler of India. Uh, but uh, in 1857, after messing it up so badly um, that uh, that they were allowed, they were asked to wind up and the rule of India passed to the crown. Okay, let's move on then to my wheelhouse, which is World War I, because Indian troops play a staggering part in the First World War, don't they, in terms of numbers? Yeah. Um, so I think approximately 1.1 million served outside. Um, total number of uh, combatants and non-combatant um, uh, hired by the Indian Army for the war efforts. Uh, it approximates about 1.5 million, um, uh, massive numbers, all volunteers, um, and, and most importantly, they uh, when 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 the British line was very thin um, in in uh, on uh, on the Western Front, uh, when the Germans were about to smash through those lines and reach the coast, at that time about 28,500 Indian soldiers um, came just in the nick of time to to prevent that um, and. Um, 
that was in terms of numbers that was not the most significant deployment the largest deployment of indian soldiers in the first world war was actually on the mesopotamia front uh, uh, where they after the initial reverses they actually defeated ottoman armies and uh, and and uh, and won it for the empire um obviously they were employed in in africa in east africa in north africa and a couple of other theaters as well uh, but uh, you know these were the sort of main main engagements of the indian army in the first world war it was i'm really interested to talk to you as well about the second world war because my grandfather fought for the british in the second world war i don't i just, i didn't even know this until i received the medal 18 months ago when my grandmother died um so what role do indians play in world war 2 and also are there already rumblings of in uh, are we already looking at sort of inevitable independence before during and after world war 2 firstly in terms of the role of indian soldiers um you know staggering numbers 2.5 million in the second world war um uh, of indians participated in the second world war on behalf of the british raj and they fought in every theater um in north africa in um, and and obviously finally the the, the uh, slims army in in southeast asia defeating japanese almost a million there which is not as well known um and 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 in the middle east um and and elsewhere so uh, push into italy um uh, during um uh, d- during the later half of the war uh, in europe so indians were basically embedded in the uh, imperial army everywhere wherever there was a uh, you know where, wherever the conflict um uh, was um so massive numbers um and all volunteers again um but you asked the other question which is you know how the rumblings um uh, what, you know what was going on with the soldiers and the indian and the british raj and 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 the intentions of british raj actually if, if, for me one of the key way in which the british raj controlled indian army was by only letting white uh, british officers to command that army uh, uh, the indian officers so called officers uh they were called officers but they had no real command there they were they were in a in this funny no man's land they were not non commissioned officers so they were above sergeant um uh, but they were uh, they were not really commanding officers um they were sort of interlocutors between the indian soldiers and the british white officers uh, but they did not really command uh, uh, the, the 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 forces below them and the indian nationalist movement which started at the beginning of the 20th century realized that if india is to gain independence it has to have an army which basically is a professional army controlled by indians and whose loyalty they can actually rely on and and so they they started to make that demand that let's start to indianize indian army which is to which is uh, which which means that let the indians become commissioned officers in that army now on this point um the british raj was very sensitive they did not allow that um till till in any meaningful way till about 1939 uh, and that's in stark contrast to the civil officers so uh, after 1857 uh, queen victoria's proclamation that we would not dis- uh, discriminate on the basis of race religion uh, caste etc it did apply to the civil services so the indians were hired into indian civil service which was the highest body of uh, of bureaucrats in india from 1860s onward actually the first indian civil servant was hired in 1864 um and in on the legislative side uh, from the beginning of the 20th century there were provincial legislations and obviously 1935 a national legislation as well um so on those two fronts the british raj was open to accommodate these demands 
but on as far as army's control is concerned they wanted it exclusively in the white officers hands but during the first world war um, a lot of promises were made to to indians uh, especially after seeing their performance in the on the western front and in the middle east uh, and and in 1917 a big announcement was made that uh, we will progressively work towards self determination and as part of that they said okay we'll allow about you know a small number 10 or so indians to be commissioned in the army and that essentially to me is a real struggle for independence to see how the character of the officer cadre of the indian army changes from 1900 onwards up to 1945 is really how the freedom struggle uh, happens um but to to sum it up you know this was all uh, whitewashed in 1939 there were only 300 indian commissioned officers after all the effort of four decades there were only 300 officers in an officer cadre which was about 5000 um uh, uh, and um uh, but what happens during the war obviously is that you're short of men mm-hmm. uh, and and from 1939 onwards they removed the bar of from indian officers to command white troops um and um because there were not enough uh, there, there were not sufficient europeans or even australians that could be found to command such a large army indians acquired commission and by the end of the war in 1945 there were about 15000 indian commissioned officers um uh, uh, and obviously uh, there, there were also 30000 european uh, commissioned officers in the indian army so the total strength was 45000 but out of that 45000 one third were indians whereas before the war only about you know 3 to 5% were indians so the army after the world war was a totally transformed army it was an army which had at least one third of commissioned officers which were indians and they had national sympathies so most of the commissioned officers came from professional classes from cities which were educated which had nationalist sympathies um if not outright uh, you know uh antagonism uh, and and um, th- that's why that army was substantially different so uh, that, that that and that had a massive implication on what the military brass in india at that time thought could be done in terms of controlling the indian army uh, and 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 the and the stability of raj in india i think we must have you back to talk about partition but we've come to the end of sort of the the instances of indians fighting for britain if you like uh, with independence in 1947 how far do you think we've come in trying to give credit that's due to indian troops who fought for the british and what do you hope the future holds for research uh, so i i think uh, there is um, increasing realization now uh, about the role of indian soldiers in the first world war and the second world war um uh, but i think that does not truly encapsulate the contribution of indian soldiers to british empire and consequently to britain and and to the place that britain finds itself today because that can only be established when you look at the start of the involvement of indian soldiers with the east india company in the mid 18th century and full 200 years of that relationship uh, britain had a very small uh, uh, recruitment pool um but its engagements its geographic spread was global uh, and it could never have found men to uh, to uh, to maintain a truly global army which it did till about end of the second world war no other power in the world um uh, perhaps except us in 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 in, uh, in 20th century and now comes anywhere close to having a truly global army britain had a global army it had the global reach and that was enabled 
because of the military talent and the military recruitment pool that it had available in India, the army in India uh, was was sometimes called as the English barrack in Oriental seas, uh, and that essentially underwrote British power in that part of the world and globally for two centuries. And without that global presence, with the limited amount of human resources and financial resources as well, the uh, Britain today is a very rich country. It was not very different from India in 1700, at the beginning of 1700. It did not have the financial resources to maintain a global uh, military presence. Um, even today, the military budget of the UK is in sing low single digits, you know, two to two, 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 three 3% of the, of the gross domestic product. And actually, the, the, the defense budget was higher during the Cold War, but much lower during the Empire's time. And that defense budget was lower because the army in India, which was essentially under the Britain's control, was financed by Indian revenues. And if you look at the percentage of Indian revenue that was spent on that army, which was essentially available to Britain to defend its interests, almost 50% of the Indian revenue was spent on the defense, on the globe, on this army, which existed for Britain. So that makes it clear for you how a country with the population and the financial uh, capability of Britain came to have such a massive influence and the exceptionalism of Great Britain uh, in, in, in today's world. Um, and I think there people need to get a better understanding uh, of, of how Britain came to be where it is today. And it would not have been possible without the uh, human and the financial resources um, that, that were made available to it. I, I sometimes I say in term, if Iceland today somehow come to control the People's Liberation Army, it would become the new Great Britain. Yeah, that's that's essentially uh, if it doesn't have to pay for that army, if China continues to pay for that army or the Chinese peasants continue to pay for that army, but it works in Iceland's interest. That is a very, uh, you know, very light and very um, uh, way of lo looking at that comparison. It's insane, isn't it? When you when you think about it, just how tied to India uh, our history is and and how we don't actually consider enough the indians on that side of it um, i want to end with a personal question for you so this book stemmed from your research into the military life of your grandfather uh, can you tell us a bit about his service and perhaps give some advice for others who might well i mean there's loads of us isn't there asian extraction people in britain uh, if if people want to look and see if they're indian and pakistani and bengali relatives uh, have a military history how do you start thank you so yes, they indeed started with my grandfather's, uh, 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 my research into my grandfather's war service. Um, he served in the Pai Force, that's uh, uh, Persia um, uh, and uh, and Iran in the Middle East. Um, he was quite young when he enlisted. He was only 17 in 1939. Um, and um, he served in the Middle East theater. And, um, you know, he had a very interesting um, end to his army career. Um, uh, which which I actually I cover in the book, and I, I better leave it leave, leave mm -hmm. the readers to read it in the book itself. Uh, but it was not the standard expected ending to to his career. But he was proud of it, and so am I. Um, uh, um, in in terms of research for uh, uh, for, for for records of uh, of Asians, Indians, Bangladeshis, and Pakistanis in the army, I, I must say that it's pretty thin uh, in terms of the records that are available in the UK. Uh, uh, and, and the records in, in India, Pakistan and Bangladesh are not as accessible. Um, so the, the, when Britain uh, left India in 1947, for most of the soldiers, um, they, the, the records, um, they left it in, in the respective uh, countries. 
Um, so uh, the the director, the adjutant general in, in Delhi probably is, is is the way for the Indian soldiers. Um, uh, wartime record, and uh, I'm, I'm sure similar records in in Pakistan and Bangladesh must exist. Less so in Bangladesh, but uh, Pakistan uh, to a great extent. Um, so to 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 answer it, I think it's 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 not so easy. It should be easy, but it's not easy uh, because you would think that most of them would be easily available in UK, but they're not. And in 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 India and Pakistan, you have to do a lot of um, you know paper uh, file filing and all of that to to get those records out. Um, but there's there's uh, you know that that's why after a certain time, I said okay, instead of just keep the focus on my grandfather, there's a bigger story to tell. Um, and, and I matched that bigger story with my grandfather's records uh, and experience. You did indeed. And tell everybody, I love the title. Um, tell everybody about the book. Yeah, so the title is True to Their Salt. And um, uh, it, it comes, as I mentioned earlier, um, salt at one stage in Indian history was uh, was a precious commodity. Um, and and, um, and, and uh, some employees or soldiers in particular were paid in salt, um, so to speak. Uh, uh, and that's why there's the saying in India that if you're true to the salt, you do not betray your employer. You do your duty to the employer who basically gives you the regular pay, which provides sustenance to yourself and your family. And uh, basically, that's the title of this, uh, of this book, True to the Salt. People who remain true to the salt, true to their employer, true to the tradition of soldiery in India and its ancient martial culture, where you basically repay with loyalty to your employer, provided the employer keeps faith, provided the employer does not interfere with your religious beliefs and your family. And uh, that's that's essentially uh, what, what the book is about. It's not a chronological history of the British Indian Army, uh, uh, because I think that's a lifetime's work for somebody. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, Fortescue has written a wonderful history of British uh, <clears throat> British Army, and I, I hope that somebody, someday somebody will take up the uh, time and the challenge and write an extensive history of British Indian Army. I've just touched upon certain themes which highlights um, what I see as the fundamental contribution of Indian soldiers to the British Empire and also to India and its independent process, looking at various themes starting from how they came to be part of this military edifice, um, how they were treated, what they were emoluments, their pensions, etc., were the discrimination, uh, the debate around officer uh, officer cadre in the army, um, uh, the, the, their focus on their own faith and how they fought to retain that, and finally how India became independent when the soldiers changed their mind. So it's a theme-based history in ten different chapters, uh, as opposed to a chronological history. Um, and I, I hope the readers will like it. Brilliant. We will make it available on online bookstore. Do buy it from there because then not only does Ravindra get his royalties, but History Hat gets a cut and you help support uh, independent bookshops as well. Because people, if you don't lose them, uh, use them, you will lose them. Uh, Ravindra, thank you so much. It's been absolutely delightful. Thank you very much, Alex. And thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I wish you all the best and uh, thank you again. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. 
You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 